All right, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, this morning we're going to look at verses 10 through 13. And why don't we go ahead and we'll read uh, that text of scripture. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everything and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you notice verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know that verse? Uh, most Christians I know have learned that verse. Uh, most can quote it, though I don't think most of us sat down and tried to learn it, right? It's just one of those verses that the first time you probably read it, it, was, it just stuck. It was something that you realized, wow, this is, this is a special verse here. This is one that I need to put in the memory banks. This is one that I'm going to remember no matter what brings uh, on in life. So I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do I use this verse correctly? Do I apply this verse correctly to my life? Now, how do we do that? How do I rightly apply God's word to my life? Well, I better understand what the verse means, right? And that's why we, we think it's very important that we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, because we want to learn what scripture means in context. We want to understand what comes before this verse. And, and hopefully next week we'll learn what comes after this verse so that we rightly interpret it. Because we know that, that you can take a verse and you can make it mean anything that you want it to mean if you just strip it by itself. In fact, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, remember Satan actually quoted scripture to Jesus. And he tried to get Jesus to misapply God's word. And what did Jesus do? He pointed Satan to what the correct meaning was. So if we're going to rightly apply the word of God, we have to first understand what does it mean. Uh, we we want to apply God's word. We want this to be practical. I pray every week that our, our teaching will be uh, application oriented, but we also want to get down to the nitty gritty. What does God mean? Because we understand God means what he says and he says what he means. I know when I say something, I don't want someone to take that word and misinterpret it and run with it. And how much more our Heavenly Father, whose word is flawless, whose word is perfect. You know, we want to we wanna honor that. So I pray that we leave this morning with a great understanding of that wonderful verse that we hopefully all have remembered. So let's begin in verse 10 of chapter 4. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now remember that one of the main reasons why Paul has written to the church in Philippi is this is really a thank you letter. It's pretty long, very long thank you letter. If you've ever written one, usually they're in these short little cards and you just write a little saying on that card and you send it in the mail. Well, Paul, obviously, as an apostle, as a church planter, as a pastor, uh, is long-winded. And he uses this opportunity uh, to, to write to this church in Philippi because Epaphroditus has brought a gift from Philippi for Paul, who's in chains. 
He's imprisoned. He's in Rome on house arrest awaiting his trial. And he does not know what awaits him. Uh, We saw as we studied this letter, he does believe that he'll be released because he believes that that's beneficial for the church in Philippi. But he doesn't know. And so he he receives this this, uh, gift, this financial blessing from the church. And this was something that he needed. It was for his needs. It wasn't so that he could buy uh, a big jet. Right? It wasn't so that he could uh, live a lavish lifestyle and buy the mansion on the hill. This was for food and maybe clothing. This was for basic necessities that he, uh, that he needed. But he uses the occasion to encourage the believers in Philippi to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. To walk in a way that's full of joy, full of meaning. Uh, he, he encouraged them to walk in unity of mind and heart, ultimately with the mind of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to get to the part where he really wants to thank this church in Philippi. Now, by the way, as any godly leader would note, as part of this thank you, he wants... He wants them to know that he's grateful, but he does not want them to feel obligated to send more, right? That's the mark of a godly leader. So when you hear a leader begging for money or making you feel obligated, maybe out of guilt, that is not the heart of God, right? The Lord will not use guilt as a motivator to try to motivate you to do anything. Did you ever try to be motivated by guilt? Doesn't last very long. It maybe works for a moment, Maybe you feel really guilty about something and you act upon that. But if guilt is a motivator for very long, it's just not very effective. Maybe you have people in your life who try to use guilt as a motivator, right? Sometimes you dread being around those people because you don't like to feel guilty. You don't like that weapon that people use against you. So if you turn on the TV and someone makes you feel guilty about sending money, okay? This ministry is going to fold up if you don't give. Well, if that's the case, then I, I don't think maybe the Lord's not in it because I don't think he's desperate uh, for resources. He uses our resources for his glory, but he's not a beggar. Our, our father has, uh, has many resources. And so he does not want them to feel obligated. He does not want them to feel like they have to give in order for him to survive. And that's the challenge that he's facing. And by the way, this church has given to Paul in the past. Uh, in writing to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 8, 3 and 4, he said, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Notice that he said that this church in Philippi and and all of Macedonia, these churches gave not out of their abundance, but they gave out of their lack. That's something. You know, it's easy when you have extra to give that extra. Well, it's not a big deal. This won't affect anything. But this church didn't give out of their abundance. It gave out of their lack. And it made it very personal for Paul as they gave for him to freely minister in Corinth. Because, see, there were certain places where Paul went where he would labor, where he would be a tent maker and he would work with his hands uh, so that he could freely minister to that church. But there were other places where he went and and planted uh, churches and, and spread the gospel where he relied on other churches to provide for his needs. Why he chose to do what he did, I don't know. I think the Spirit must have led him. Maybe in Corinth, which was a pretty ungodly place, maybe he realized he needed to put all of his eggs in one basket in that area. And so he did receive funding uh, so that he could freely minister to the church in Corinth. 
but he notes that this church gave to him. He would go on to say to the Corinthians how he actually felt that he robbed the churches in Macedonia, which would have included Philippi, so that he could freely minister to the church in Corinth. He said this, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. So in other words, there was a track record that had developed between this church and the Apostle Paul. And yet we see from our text that it's been some time since this church has given to, to Paul for the purpose of ministry, right? Now real quick, before we get into the text, if you were Paul... I know that's sometimes hard to put yourself in his shoes because he thinks so differently than we do. How would you write this thank you letter? What are some things that you would want to say? What are some things that you'd want to be very careful with as you chose your wording, right? Because again, you don't want this church to believe that you think anything less of it because they have not given to you in a while, right? You don't want them to feel guilty because it's been a couple years since you've received any financial support. Do you ever support someone for a while and then maybe for whatever reason you couldn't and then you saw that person and you just, there's something, you feel uneasy. You feel like you should have been providing but maybe you couldn't. And so he doesn't want them to feel bad. He doesn't want them to, to think that somehow he thinks less of them because they haven't given. You also want to thank them but again you don't want them to feel obligated. Notice the first thing though that Paul points out to us in verse 10 is that he rejoiced not in them. Who did he rejoice in? He rejoiced in the Lord. The gift that he had received from this church caused him to rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because he understood who this gift was really from. He understood that even though it was the saints in Philippi who provided for his needs, as he'll say next week, my God shall supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. See, he's helping us to see the things that he taught us the last couple weeks, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I would say, rejoice. And so he's, he's really, he's practicing his own medicine here. He's, he's doing what he's told us to do. He's rejoicing in the Lord. And it's, as he receives this offering from the saints, it was tangible evidence for him that God is faithful to see and provide for his very needs. And isn't that how God uses the body of Jesus Christ? Maybe you're in a time of need and someone from the body comes through for you. Whatever that need is. Maybe you didn't even know that they knew what that need is. And they come through in just the right time and it just does something to your heart because it shows you that God sees you. He sees your situation. He knows what you need and he prompted someone to give in that time of need. It does something to our hearts and it causes us to rejoice in the Lord. That's the importance of body ministry, right? That as the body gives, whatever it gives, whether it be time, treasures, talents, spiritual giftings, it also shows us the importance of doing everything in the name of Jesus, right? Because we want people to see Jesus when we give our gifts. We don't want the one hand to see what the other hand does. We want to do it in the name of Jesus. We want to do it in the power of the Spirit of God through his name. And so he notes that their care for him has flourished again. And I like this word flourished. It, it could be translated to blossom. It's sort of like those plants that blossom maybe once a year. And, and it's right season. And so he understands their, their care for him has flourished. It's blossomed like a flower. 
But notice it's not the gift that Paul was first thankful for. Rather, it's their care for him. He notes it's their care. And this is significant because he's showing them that he's thankful for them. He's thankful for their hearts. He's thankful for the person and not the gift itself, right? He, he's more thankful for the giver than the gift. And he wants them to understand this, how, how much he cherishes them. Why? Because their fellowship extends far beyond this gift. Their fellowship is in Christ. And this is something that's eternal. Do you realize when you fellowship with the saints, when we gather together as believers in Jesus Christ, we are partaking of something that is eternal in nature. Because we are going to fellowship forever together with the Lord. This is just a taste. This is just a moment. But this is something that's eternal. And his fellowship with his church is something that will last forever. The gift that they gave, guess what? He's going to eat today and he'll be hungry again tomorrow. The gift only lasts so long. But he cherishes them. And isn't this something that we all want in our own hearts? This is something that we want to teach our children, right? Especially in a season like Christmas. When it's all about sometimes the gifts. I remember watching Garfield's Christmas as a young boy and that song, Gimme, 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 was coming on and it's all about, you know, he wants everything that he possibly can get. Maybe I'm stirring back some memories there. I haven't seen that in quite a while. But for so many, Christmas is about the gift. It's about what can I get? And we want to teach our children, no, it's, it's about the giver. Ultimately, it's about the Lord who gives every perfect and good gift. I want to teach my boys that. I want them to understand the value of that. Ultimately, every gift comes from above, every good gift. I remember even as a little boy, I had an aunt. They were sisters, a great aunt and a grandmother. And my great aunt, she was very well-to-do, very well-off, you know, going to Broadway shows and living it up, eating at fancy restaurants, and just very well-off, nothing against her. And she would give me a Christmas gift. And then there was my grandmother, who I believe lived paycheck to paycheck, just living off of Social Security. And even as a young boy, I, I understood the sacrifice on my grandmother's part. I understood what this gift meant, because she gave out of her lack. Not, of, not out of her abundance. And, and that's Paul's heart here. He understands this is not a church that just has a surplus necessarily. This is a church that just has generous hearts. And he's thankful for them. He's thankful for their heart. He's thankful for their care. And he's very, he's very poignant to point out that he understands why they haven't given to him in a while. He says, though you surely did care. And that's, an, that's an, an imperfect word. It means that they constantly were caring. But you lacked, again, that's also imperfect. You lacked, you continually lacked opportunity. So here's what he's doing. He's showing them, and in the Greek it's very clear. He's showing them, even though you gave me in the past... You have continually cared to the present. And even though you gave in the past, you've continually lacked in the present until now. He's creating a chain between when they last gave and when they're presently giving. And he's saying, I understand your care for me has been continuous all along. But you've continually lacked the opportunity. But now that you've heard that I'm in prison, now that you've gained this opportunity, oh, I'm so thankful to the Lord for you. 
I'm so thankful that you've, you've given, but I'm so thankful for you. Verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Again, he does not want them to see that he is dependent on them, right? It's not why he's rejoicing. And it's not in regard to need. Notice he has learned or literally been initiated in contentment. It's something that he's learned. It's not something that he grew up with, right? Left to himself, Paul had to learn this lesson. And and I like this because it shows us that Paul is not morally superior to any of us. It's not like he's some super saint in the sense morally speaking. And he did not have a leg up on the Philippians nor on us. Why? Because we as people are not naturally content, are we? Is this something that just comes easy to you? Contentment? If you want an illustration, are children content by nature? I'm getting a lot of blank stares. (laughs) In my experience, children are very rarely content. Just for a moment. And in our ADHD society, that moment lasts not very long. And then we want something new and something again and again and again and again. And you try to fill that contentment. And again, it doesn't last very long, right? And so this is not something that comes natural to us as human beings. It's something that we have to learn as Paul learned. Now, what's significant, though, about that word content, this is a word that to the Philippians would have rang a bell, okay? Because this was a very common word used in their day that was prevalent. It was a philosophy that was prevalent amongst Hellenistic uh, philosophers called Stoics. And these Stoics, uh, they viewed contentment as one of life's greatest goals, right? And the idea was to live above need and abundance so that one would be totally self-sufficient, Now, that does not mean self-sufficient like we use the word today. Today, we mean not to be dependent on anyone. I want to be self-sufficient, you know. Dad, Mom, I just, I want to leave the house. I want to leave the nest. I want to get my job and I want to pay my rent. I want to be self-sufficient. That's not what this means. Uh, The idea uh, means, rather, that you would be totally sufficient of yourself outside of circumstances. In other words, outside circumstances would not dictate inner peace. Does that sound familiar? Remember, we just saw, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and what? The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We just learned that. That our outward circumstances should not dictate our inner person. And so, this is something that's familiar to the Philippians, it's familiar to us. Yet, while the goal of contentment was similar between Paul and the Stoics, how to get there we'll see, is worlds apart. Because for the Stoics, this is something that they try to find from within themselves. This was a self-discipline, if you will, that the Stoics strived after. And it, was, it, it had to come from within. And so not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned, I, in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. And so Paul has learned to be content in both extremes. He's learned to be content whether he is abased. That means to live humbly, to live without, to live poorly. uh, 
or to abound, to live in prosperity, to, to just have an abundance. Now, in the book of Proverbs chapter 30, Agur has an interesting take on contentment. This is what his prayer was to the Lord. He made this request. He said, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now that's wisdom, right? That's wisdom, because we know there's a danger in both poverty and in riches. Some of us would say, boy, I'd like that danger of riches. I'd sure like to try that one out, right? Test me, Lord, on this one. You know, Lord, if you really want to bring a test into my life, let it be riches, right? But he notes that riches or abundance, what's the risk? The risk is that I forget God. That I, that I forget God. I put my trust in those riches. I put my security in those riches. I put everything I have in those riches. And therefore, what do I do? I deny the Lord. I'm not dependent on him. Remember, when, when Israel was going into uh, the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord actually warned them, when you enter the land of prosperity, when you enter the land and you have need of nothing, and he warns them not to forget him, not to forget the giver, and just embrace the gift. Because that's our human nature. We focus on the gift. And the Lord had to warn the children of Israel, don't forget the giver when you are blessed with all of the gifts. And so the riches or abundance, Agar understands, is a danger. But he also said, Lord, don't let me be poor. Don't let me be in poverty because I'm afraid that I will steal, right? And so the risk is also for the poor person to forget the Lord, only it takes on a different form, right? Because literally when, when someone's poor, they forget about the Lord and what do they do? They take matters in their, my own hands. Let me steal because I can't depend on the Lord. I've got to take matters into my own hands now. And so both issues can present challenges, right? Here, let me give you a couple examples. Who thinks more about food? Someone who's hungry or someone who's a glutton? Who thinks more about riches? Someone who's poor or someone who's rich? Both, necessary. I mean, neither or both, right? Either or. The point is, we're susceptible either way. Either extreme, we can forget about the Lord. And so both groups come from different perspectives, but both can equally be driven by the desire for either. And Agar says, Lord, I can't handle either of them. Just give me enough. And that's a wise prayer. Lord, just give me enough. But do you realize what we have here in Philippians? Paul actually goes further in his maturity because he's, been, he's learned to be content in both cases. See, both things that Agar said, Lord, don't give me, don't give me riches or don't give me poverty. Paul is saying, I've learned to be content in riches. And I've learned to be content in poverty. See, grace abounds much more. And, and the old covenant could only bring you so far. The old covenant could just say, Lord, just give me enough. But grace says, Lord, whatever you give me, I'm going to be able to rejoice in you. I'm going to abound. Why? Because grace, Christ is so much greater than the old covenant. Grace is so much better than the law. And so the Lord is able to do so much more in our lives than he did even in the old covenant. Why? Because the old covenant was external. The new covenant is internal. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory, right? 
It's so much greater. The old covenant could say, don't do this. But the new covenant in Christ gives us the empowerment not to do this or to do this. And so, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. Notice he's just covering everything right now. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer need. And so Paul learned to be content whether he eats filet mignon or spam. Right? He's learned to live in beautiful houses or to be homeless. To be free or to be in chains. To drive a Bentley or to walk on his feet everywhere. No, I don't think he drove a Bentley. But he's learned contentment. And he's found the secret for both of them. Think of how, this, how powerful this would be in this day and age. In our world, in our society that is totally driven by greed, by lust, by the desire for things, for selfish ambition. How powerful in our own lives and as a witness would this contentment be for our hearts? Because I read this and I say, Lord, I want this. I long for this kind of contentment. I want this, Lord. But the question is, how do we get there? How do I get to where Paul is, where he says, I've learned this. I've learned this lesson. I don't think it's an easy lesson, right? We go through seasons where we're content for a season, and then you realize, whoa, oh, I'm, I'm kind of falling backwards into the old ways, the old patterns. How do we get there? Well, he answers the question in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Notice the contrast with the Stoics, who the Philippians would have been familiar with. Their sufficiency was in self. Paul's saying, my sufficiency is in Christ. Totally different world. Totally different. You know, it's similar to today in our age, one of the big philosophies is self-esteem. Right? Self-esteem is one thing, but what about Christ-esteem? See, you can build yourself up, but what about what Christ says about you? In my life, I've learned Christ-esteem does a whole lot more for me than self-esteem. Because I'm who God says I am, not who the world says that I am, not who other people say that I am, not even who I say that I am. Because I lie to myself all the time, right? Who does the Lord say that I am? So here, he's not going with the Stoics. They're, they're going in totally different paths here. Stoics are trying to conjure this thing up from within. Paul's saying, no, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My help comes from Jesus Christ. And he's able to do far beyond what these Stoics or what the world has to offer. And so his sufficiency came from Christ alone. And regardless of his present condition or circumstances, Jesus Christ was sufficient to empower him to persevere. And as great as Agar's prayer was, Paul understood that there's someone greater than Solomon or Agar. Jesus Christ. And as great of wisdom that Solomon presented to us or Edgar presents to us in the book of Proverbs. We're studying Proverbs right now on Thursday nights. Great wisdom, right? But we understand as believers that Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of wisdom. <laughs> he is wisdom for us. He became wisdom for us, Paul told the Corinthians. And so he's so much greater. And for Paul, I love this, 
Everything's centered about, around relationships. And that's what we're seeing in, in these couple of verses this morning. He cares about the Philippians, right? The gift is great, but I love you. It's not about what you can do for me. I just love you. And that's the heart of God, right? Isn't that the heart of our Lord that he gave the Apostle Paul? It's not what we can do for the Lord. Please understand, there's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less. Because it's who he is. He loves you completely as you are. Now he'll transform you, yes. But you can't bring anything to the table to make him love you anymore. You can't offer the gift and say, Lord, will you be pleased with me now? Will you love me more because I've offered the gift? Or if you forgot to bring the gift, <laughs> now he loves you less. No, see, that's the love Paul is demonstrating to this church. You know, you've lacked opportunity. You've, you've, I know you've desired, but look, your care has flourished for me. Your care has flourished for me. I care about you. But it wasn't just about them, right? I rejoiced in the Lord. And so his life revolved around relationships with them and with the Lord. And that's what sustained Paul. Now I've heard this verse taken out of context many times by believers. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can climb Mount Everest. Right? Now if the Lord calls you to climb Mount Everest, then praise the Lord. He'll give you the grace and strength you need to climb Mount Everest. The power of this verse goes much deeper than just playing a football game or climbing a mountain or accomplishing some huge feat, right? Because this is the power of Christ working in the believer to find contentment no matter what life throws at him or her. That's power. That's, that's incredible. That's far beyond physical power. Whether relationships are plenty or you're all alone. Whether work is going great or everything's falling apart. Whether you're in wealth or in poverty. Health or sickness. On days when the sun shines brightly or when it's dreary and rainy. When there's hills and when there's valleys. When there's plenty in the kitchen cupboard or you barely have enough to survive. On days of excitement or days where it's just the same old, same old mundane thing over and over and over again. No matter what life brings, there, this is contentment that Jesus Christ offers to us. His peace, his presence in our life. And the Apostle Paul learned the secret. He understood that his contentment did not come from anything on the outside, but it rather came from a person, and that person is Christ, who actually dwells in the believer. And that's the secret that he found. You know, there's a book out there, wonderful book. I, I, I'm not trying to peddle books up here. But it's a wonderful book called They Found the Secret. And it's about this very thing, all these different short biographies of believers through the centuries who found the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That he is enough. He is our portion. He is our sufficiency. And it's so much greater than climbing Mount Everest. It's so much greater than how we usually use this verse, you know, just to tackle life and all that life throws at us. Yes, his grace is sufficient. Yes, his power is made perfect in our weakness. But in the context, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? No matter what life throws at me. And let me tell you something. This is something that the world is grasping for. This is something that people are looking for in all the wrong places. My question for us this morning is first of all, do you know Jesus Christ? Because that's where it all begins. That where life, that's where life begins. He died on a cross for you and me, right? 
He was buried. He rose again on the third day and he ascended to the Father. And he sent his spirit to come and dwell in us so that we could be transformed, so that we could know him and walk with him and live with him. And he reveals himself to us on a day-in, day-out basis as we open up his word, as we fellowship with one another, we experience the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not just a doctrine, right? He's a person. And he makes himself available to us through the doctrine of Scripture. And he wants to reveal himself to us in this manner that we would find our peace and our joy and our sufficiency and everything that we need in him. And through him we can do all things, no matter what life throws at you. Do you have that contentment this morning? I want this contentment, I'll be honest with you. I want this kind of joy and this kind of peace. No matter what my circumstances are, he is enough. And so I would challenge you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, trust him. He's trustworthy. He's the only one who will never lie to you. He's the only one who makes a promise and he keeps it 100% of the time. You know what I found? What he promises is so much better than what the world promises. Because the world promises contentment. Right? You drive down the road here a couple minutes and you're going to see probably five different billboards promising you some type of contentment. If you just buy this, you will be content. Until the next thing. Then you've got to buy the next thing to be content. And the next iPhone. And then the next iPhone, right? And it's always something else. And you're always searching and grasping, whatever that thing is. We're always grasping for something else. Chasing that next thing. And that next thing never arrives because it's always eluding us. It's, it's like that carrot that's dangling before our eyes and we, we never quite reach it. And yet there's Christ standing there beckoning us to just come freely with nothing because we can really bring nothing. The only thing we can attribute to our salvation is sin. And he took that sin and he nailed it in the body of his son so that we could go free. Great news. Have you trusted in the Son this season? Have you found your contentment in Jesus Christ? Don't go after cheap copycats that the world offers because they don't satisfy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom of your word. Thank you that through the world's wisdom, no one will ever find you because, Lord, it's fleeing. It's it's weak. It doesn't give what it promises. It promises us fulfillment and joy and peace. And it leaves us empty and wanting more, but never satisfied. Lord, you alone satisfy our souls. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And you desire to give us yourself, Lord. May we never desire the gifts, though, more than the giver, Lord. As much as we long for the peace and the joy and the contentment, What we really need is you, Lord. That's what Paul found. Lord, he found his sufficiency is in Christ, in Christ alone. Lord, would you you guide our hearts into this? Would you make it real for us, Lord? Not just a, a head knowledge thing, but Father, would you make it real that we would seriously find our contentment in your Son? And that we would desire nothing greater than him because he is what's greatest. Forgive us for following after cheap copycats, Lord. Illusions, mirages. Let us walk in the victory and power of your spirit, the risen Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection, fellowship of his suffering. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.